Hi, I'm Ingrid Kohler. And I'm Jonathan Carwest. And welcome to LGIU Fortnightly. So Ingrid, we're we're back again, continuing our, our semi-intentional, accidental, kind of intentional, past, present, future series of podcasts. that we, We've had a sort of theme running through the last few. It was all a part of the plan. It was all completely planned out. Planned. Last time we spoke, we were we were sort of looking looking back a bit, reflecting on a, a year of lockdown, an extraordinary year, an awful year for many people. This this week, we're trying to look forward again. What have we got on? Ooh, we've got some great interviews. One with an LGIU associate, Carrie Ferguson, talking about the Multi Democratic Council, and another with Oxford City Councilor Tom Hayes who's going to tell us what that looks like in practice, um, reflecting on their Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change. Great. And this is all part of our, our work on post-COVID councils, or post-COVID councils framework. I, a, a piece of work that I I now sort of find, I find the name slightly slightly embarrassing now almost. I mean, it, it feels, I've said this before, I think, but it, it feels very much like the type of name we came up with as we did this time last year, when when I felt like this was a thing that would come and then would go and would be over and would would change things, but that there would be a clear kind of other side, which, as we're all experiencing, is not, you know, it's not it's not as simple as that. It's not. I mean, I still have to hold out hope that we are moving towards a post-COVID world in the sense that it's not going to be dominating our everyday life in the same kind of way that it has been. But, you know... Humans have lived with disease for a long time, and we're going to have to find a way to make our way forward with COVID, hopefully vaccinated in a way that it's no longer so life endangering. But it's going to be something that we will be living with. But I think in terms of post-COVID, I don't think it's so bad because, you know, we're kind of planning a post-COVID LGIU and councils are also planning what their futures are going to be like. In a, in a less COVID-dominated world. I think that's right. And I do think, you know, I sometimes ask myself, what, you know, how do we frame this and why do we frame it like that? And I think it matters because whatever the status of that post, you know, whether it's sort of post-COVID or just less COVID or living with COVID or, you know, just COVID not being so dominant, what we do know, I think, and, and again, when we started this last, last year, there was a lot of talk around how you know, this is going to change everything. This is this unique historical moment. It's going to cause us all to sort of revalue everything. And some of that now feels slightly overblown. But I, I still think that actually this last year has fundamentally changed a lot of things. Perhaps we don't quite know what things in all cases. But, you know, in some key ways that, that, that affect local government, there has, I think, been a permanent shift. So whether that's around the way people work and a move from kind of nine to five in office working, which whatever the prime minister says, I think is not coming back in the same way and the impact of that on town centres, whether it's about the way people relate to each other and what people have sort of learned and, and experienced in terms of community, whether it's just about the level of state intervention that we've seen, you know, an unprecedented peacetime level of state intervention in our lives, in our economy, in our jobs over the last year, which I suspect has a kind of, is, is so dramatic that it sort of permanently sort of shifts the window of what people think is possible and appropriate. But even on a most practical level, is going to have to be paid for. So must dominate the economy and decisions about spending and uh, for, for, for the foreseeable future. So 
I do think you know, it's right to focus on this, what does local government look like after or in the latter stages or beyond this stage of the pandemic, because it must be different. And local government does have to plan for those different those different scenarios and that different that different way of being and that different way that different economy different work patterns different social interactions different health interventions different patterns of of life that we're going to see as we move out of the pandemic yeah and and councils will absolutely have to change how they do business too it was already there like the seeds of this were already there so we already knew that we have these institutions which were established in the kind of late 19th century and we're not those people anymore. Some of those institutions have to stay. Some of those ways of doing have to stay because they work and they're good. But we have to make a decision about which of those things were good and which of those things we want to carry forward. Andy Johnston, one of our colleagues, has been working on this where he's kind of imagining different scenarios of how councils might choose, like different operating systems almost. But there, of course, you know, in reality, it's going to be a mix of all these different things or a mix of some of them choosing from a menu uh, for different services and different uh, purposes. But in practice, now for us, it's good to think about these things as different, different channels of thinking, you know, so yeah. like what what does a multi-democratic council look like as we go ahead and we're going to hear from Carrie about how she imagined that. So this is the the last in in the pillars of our post COVID councils framework. But it's it's long it's long running. <laughs> we're not done um, yet. <laughs> so you know, towards a new municipalism where we're focusing in, you know, after looking at issues around you know public trust, issues around community, issues around power and decision making, issues around unfinished business for local government, we're specifically honing in on the sort of institutional questions, the organizational questions. What does local government look like as an organization in the future? And as you say, and these sort of led these imaginings process. What have we had? We've had the the municipal council, the provider of services, we've had the well-being driven council, we've got other ones coming up, the green council, the low tax council, the resilient council. And there's still an opportunity to shape that, is there not? Oh yeah, absolutely. So if people want to get involved they need to go to our post-COVID page, sign up for that, and you can be updated on all the different pillars because we're kind of not done with all the other ones either. You know, we've done the big chunk of work, but the thinking continues to build. Yeah. But on this one in particular, there are a number of topics where people can still still shape the discussion, be a part of it, and, you know, say what a green council might look like or what a tech-enabled or community-driven council might look like. Great. And you've been talking to Kerry about the multi-democratic council. What does that mean? I think we should probably hear from her what a multi-democratic council means. But in essence, that combination of engagement with the public and representative democracy to kind of shape the way decisions are made. So let's hear from Kerry. Tell us who you are. I'm Kerry Ferguson. I'm one of the LGIU's associate briefing writers and a policy consultant. And I've got a background in local government and the civil service in the UK. Fantastic. And you just wrote a piece for us, an imagining, I think it's described as, mm -hmm. about multi-democratic council. 
What does that mean? So the Multi-Democratic Council is a council that blends representative democracy with direct and deliberative forms of democracy. So we all know that councils have elections. Some of them have youth councils and all sorts of other representative forums. And there are also other innovations and ways of getting people involved in democracy. So in a multi-democratic council, it would embrace a whole range of those things. So you might have local referendums, you might have uh, citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting, you might crowdsource policy ideas, you might use what they call civic tech, so basically digital platforms to, to reach out to people and to get, get a broader range of people involved in policymaking and in local democracy. A lot of local government has been doing some elements of these things for a very long time. What is it about now that's different? That's a good question. A lot of councils have been doing some of this stuff, and certainly there are lots of examples from the UK and overseas of this of these kind of innovations. What's different now, I think, is that there's a recognition that representative democracy is is in some trouble. You know, we've seen you know local election turnouts pretty low, you know, 35% for the 2018 English elections. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there with political institutions. There's a falling trust amongst the citizenry with the people who who are supposed to represent them. And a sense that people don't have enough control over over decisions that affect their lives. So the multi-democratic council would allow many more opportunities to participate and the idea is that that would reinvigorate democracy. I think there is also an issue in the UK in particular, being one of the most centralised countries amongst the democratic suite of countries, that says, well, even if local government embraces these kinds of new approaches or you know, takes them on board more um, and integrates it more in its decision-making processes, that it doesn't really matter because... Councils don't have that much discretion anyway. Can we have truly multi-democratic councils if councils don't have a lot of decision-making power? The centralisation in the UK is is definitely a problem. And I would always argue that local councils need more discretion. And the legal framework at the moment in which local government exists is, is pretty constrained. I mean, we've just been hearing in the last few days about central government controlling whether councils can have meetings online or not which is, you know, I think would be quite a shock to a lot of people that central government can dictate even that kind of detail. But I don't think we should underestimate what councils can actually do. I mean, there's nothing now to stop councils having citizens' assemblies. Participatory budgeting is positively encouraged. It's been a kind of a long-standing government commitment going right back to the um, Brown government. Lots of councils are already doing some of this stuff. I think this is a bit more about viewing this as a spectrum. So what I think would be great is if councils think about what they might be able to do to move a little bit further along the spectrum to being multi-democratic. So it's not about, you know, trying to, to reinvent a new form of local democracy, which would be, you know, which would require a legislative change and all sorts of constitutional changes. It's about doing more of what you can do now and kind of trying new things, I guess, within the current framework. So I guess, I mean, I, I guess I'm playing slightly devil's advocate on some of these things. 
But there will be, I mean, there will be many counselors who embrace this opportunity. We spoke, I think, la- oh, time has just lost all meaning, frankly. But at some point, I know we spoke to the leader of Oxford City Council about their planned, then planned citizens assembly on climate change. Um, And she was just, you know, like really excited about the opportunity of engaging with people on policy issues. But presumably there will be some counselors who say, well, where does that, where does that put me? I've been represented. I've been chosen to represent local people and to make these decisions. So where's my role if we're just bringing citizens in to decide? Uh, on these matters. Yeah, I think this is this isn't about replacing councillors or undermining their role. Clearly, if you've got more direct and participatory democracy alongside your representatives, that does mean representatives ceding some control to local people. But actually, you may get a lot of benefits from that. You may get better policy solutions because you're bringing in a broader range of perspectives, lots of different ideas. You've got a lot of local knowledge that local people and and civil society will have to contribute. And ultimately, in most of these types of ways of getting involved in democracy, you're about informing decisions. So the councillors still ultimately have the accountability and they still make the decisions. But actually, the way they get there has been much more engaging and, and has brought different perspectives into the process and made people feel that they've got a stake in it. And I think that's a good thing. Let's think just a minute about how we're communicating right now. So we're not in the same room together. Um, we're we're online. We're having this conversation. You know, so digital offers lots of opportunities. I think a lots of us have seen what happened at pa- Hanforth Parish Council. We've <laughs> probably never watched a parish council um, meeting online before, but now most of us have. What role does digital play in this? What's the good and what do we need to watch out for? Technology is a thread that runs throughout some of these different ways of getting people involved in democracy. So you might have, as I said, crowdsourcing platforms. There's quite a few open source uh, pieces of software that councils can use to engage with people. And, you know, that keeps the cost quite modest um, and they can be adapted to local circumstances and so on. But actually the evidence shows that that you still need that face-to-face interaction as well. And actually, that you know, you need to have technological solutions alongside some of the more traditional good practice in involving people. So, you know, having a conversation, exploring ideas with people in person and engaging with people where, where they are. So, you know, it, instead of, you know, expecting people to come to the town hall for a meeting or, or whatever it might be, actually go to where people are. And, um, and find out what their concerns are and what their ideas are. And obviously, in the, during the pandemic, that's been you know, really difficult because face-to-face interaction has been very much curtailed. But thinking ahead to when things are better, I think technology certainly has a role and you know, will be a, a big part of this. But let's not neglect some of the things that we know work about, about um, getting people involved in decision-making. We've talked about some of these different methods and how councils can blend their existing decision-making framework with more collaborative approaches uh, with citizens. What are some early practical steps that councils could make to integrate it with their decision-making process? I think um, 
you know, have a look and see, have, have a look at some of the practices that are out there. There's lots of case studies. Um, there's lots of practical examples of councils that, that are doing these things. I mean, my paper was an imagining. It was a, a, a thought exercise, really. But um, all of the examples in there are being used somewhere. And quite a lot of them are being used in the UK. So I think, first of all, have a look and see what other people are doing. There's lots to be learned from that. And think about how how to bring the citizen perspective into into policy making and, and policy processes and really it, it's about building partnerships between councillors and local people you know it's not about supplanting the role of the councillor a lot of these you know blend quite well together councils have been trying to get local people involved in um in decision making or you know they've been consulting with people for many many years and this is just about bringing in some new ways of doing that that are a bit more collaborative and actually bring people together to solve problems rather than kind of coming up with the solutions and consulting on them. You're kind of involving people at an earlier stage and you're helping build your understanding of of what's going on um, in local communities and what the concerns are. So I'm going to ask you uh, just just an opinion thing. When you were looking through some of these things, which kind of approach were you like, oh, yeah, I really like that. That looks cool. I think um, I'm really intrigued by citizens' assemblies. I really like the way that they bring people together to build consensus. I think at the moment our politics is quite divided and probably it's a legacy of Brexit and other things. But, you know, there's been a lot of division in the country in recent years. And what I really like about citizens' assemblies is that they're they're about working together to find solutions and to to kind of um, overcome those differences and find policy solutions that are that are acceptable across the piece and there's been some really good examples of this Ireland Ireland Citizens Assembly which they use at national level has tackled a range of different issues but kind of famously made recommendations on abortion law reform which is you know is a very um, emotive and divisive subject but they they've managed to find a way through that and bring people together and I think that's a great innovation that that could potentially be applied to all sorts of, of topics across local government. Yeah, I agree. I think citizens' assemblies are a really exciting opportunity to help people both explain and understand their both what the policy is or could be and their own personal perspective on, on things. And if we can understand each other better, then surely we can ease some of the divisiveness. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah, that's that's really really interesting, isn't it? Um, so many questions. I mean, do you know people should go and, and read the read the fuller piece, the, the you know, her her imagining of the multi democratic council. For me, it's you know I guess I've been on a big journey in all this. When I when I first came in to the local government sphere, I very much came from that participatory democracy background, and I think it's really 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 important. But what I like about Carrie's piece is it sort of asks, I think, quite necessary questions about how it fits with sort of broader institutional framework so it's you know it's multi-democracy it's not one type of democracy and i think we have over the years tended to sort of pit different forms of democracy against each other a bit too much and you know maybe i've just gone native in local government but but you know having a decade ago been you know i was really enthusiastic you know writing a lot about you know participation about you know citizen empowerment about empowered communities 
all of which I still believe are good things and necessary things, and we can't meet the challenges we have without them. But I guess I've come to think a lot more about how you also need those things to operate within a kind of institutional framework. I'm thinking back a lot to you know, a, a decade ago when, you know, well, first of all, you had the, the empowerment agenda that Hazel Blears put forward under the Labour government, which didn't really land. And then you had that big push on the big society from the, the coalition government, you know, David Cameron's big idea, which we sort of mock a little bit now and people kind of laugh about it. But in season three, that was a really big deal. You know, they were really serious about that. It was a, a massive thing with, you know, they, that took legislative form. I mean, you had the Localism Act in 2011 that embedded community rights, community right to buy, community right to challenge the, around the, you know, the delivery of public services, you know, assets, community value, all embedded in legislation. You know, teams within government working to make that happen. You had a whole program around community organisers. And it never quite landed. I can tell you why I think it never landed. Is you said teams of organisers within government, and that's the wrong place for them. And I think they didn't. You know, and, I, and this isn't hindsight, because we, like many other people, were in the room saying this at the time and you know, didn't have the influence. to. If you don't think through how those systems are going to interact with the systems of local government that we already actually have, and that are actually the places where money is spent, you know, that have the statutory duties, that have the kind of ability to spend public money. If you don't think you know, that have the, the, the democratic accountability structures, you know, councillors, if you don't think about how those things intersect, if you're going to set up, and I remember Cameron talking about an army of community organisers, if you're going to set that up without thinking about how do they relate or not to the army of 20,000 councillors that we have around the, the country, you know, unless you do that sort of hard work about thinking of how those different systems can work together rather than just be you know, transposed onto one another, then it doesn't work. And secondly, if you try, I mean, frankly, if you try to do that whilst at the same time taking huge amounts of money out of the system, it doesn't work. So, you know, we, people talk a lot about kind of this, this agenda is very much back. And I, I just think it's important that we learn those lessons from the past. And I think Kerry's piece sort of speaks to that with that, that multivalent approach. It's not participation or representation which certainly back in the hazel blears days that's you know councillors very much pushed back they said we represent it's not yeah it's not one or the other you have to have all of that going forward so you know i found her piece and, and it's reflected in the interview i found her piece really really thought-provoking and interesting i think it's fair to say as well that representation without engagement and participation can be you know just as much a hiding to nothing absolutely i think i think that I think that's the problem. I think they are, in reality, they are they are symbiotic. You need both, and they need to to sort of draw from each other and strengthen each other in a sort of virtuous circle. In reality, I think too often we have seen them as alternative models, and then the failings and that mag and then that magnifies the failings of each, rather than sort of drawing on the virtues of each. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that brings us nicely to that interview with Councillor Tom Hayes, who is. An award-winning. He's counselor. one of our councillor award winners. Yeah, he is. He won the uh, environment and sustainability pioneer at the very latest councillor awards back in in November last year. Yeah, which I think you can probably go and watch still on YouTube. I, I mean, nothing to. ever dies on the internet. It's it's still there. <laughs> anyway, I think he this perfectly encapsulates um, that very point because there were being 
participative and engaging and using local people to formulate and drive policy. But it was hand in hand with the council. And the council was both providing a platform, but also providing that institutional platform to drive those decisions ahead. Because you can't, you know, can make decisions, but if you don't have people to to make that happen, then it won't happen. It was so good talking to him. He's just such an interesting guy. And so he's just talking about, you know, both the process and about the policy itself. So let's have a listen. So Tom, tell me who you are and what you do. Hello, I'm Councillor Tom Hayes, Oxford City Council's Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Green Transport and Zero Carbon Oxford. I guess about, well, time has no meaning anymore, but it was a while ago. I interviewed uh, your your leader about the plans, which were which were well in place. It was about to kick off. The plans to do a, a citizens jury, citizens panel on climate change in Oxford. And I said, let's follow up. And then she made a terrible joke about my university. We've got this rivalry between the University of Texas and University of Tennessee. So, of course, we cannot have her back on. So we've got you instead. Tell us how it went. Well, it's great to be here. And I think I would agree with my leader on all things, including which university is best. So uh, moving swiftly on, it went really well. It went even better than hoped and expected. So when you spoke to Councillor Susan Brown, we had set in place the plan for a citizens' assembly on climate change. The first by a UK city, we were beaten to the punch by Camden in holding the first by a council. Um, and we joke about that among ourselves. Friendly banter, friendly banter among the councils. Two great councils, I think, that are doing really good stuff on environmental issues because we've listened to our citizens. We've actively gone out to listen to them. And at the assembly, we had four whole days, two full weekends, facilitated by Ipsos Mori, who really do know their onions when it comes to these things. And we put to up to 50 people who were a mini Oxford in the, in the Said Business School some really big questions. We wanted to know how much further and faster than the government's national legal target should the city of Oxford go to meet our climate crisis. We specifically wanted to know around the issues of biodiversity, energy, buildings, transport and waste management, what policies would be acceptable to a broad spectrum of people in the city, which would allow us to go far down the road to meeting the climate crisis within Oxford, within their locality, but also in a way which allows them to feel listened to and consulted and included in the processes we would introduce. And out the back of it, we didn't just get a steer from the Citizens' Assembly on what ambition the council ought to show and what resourcing we should put into that. We didn't just get a steer on which areas of those five themes we could particularly make inroads in to cutting our carbon emissions. We also got to really take part in an exciting democratic exercise. I think in Oxford, we've got a very robust local democracy. It certainly feels that way in council meetings. Um, the administration is very much held to account and our public are very informed and eager to come to meetings to hold us to account. And I think all councillors from all parties do a really good job on the whole. But there was something really unique about having this form of democratic exercise take place, particularly at a time when the votes in Parliament on Brexit were moving to their most dramatic uh, votes, when the tension was quite high about politics, the country felt divided, Oxford felt divided, at a time when populism was surging like we'd not seen in many, many decades. 
and at a time too when the underfunding of local government and the situations that we face across a whole spectrum of policies, not just the climate crisis, could lead a local council such as Oxford to feel like we are not resourced to do all that we want to do to meet our public need. And I think we got so many learnings out of this exercise that we're carrying into not just our climate response, but also how we try to build and strengthen trust with all communities in our city. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think one of the things that's really amazed me about the um, Citizens' Assembly in in Ireland, uh, for example, where they've really tackled some very contentious issues within the same kind of climate of rising populism and declining... I don't want to say full trust in democracy, but, you know, declining sentiment about the way democracy is working. And I think it's made them stronger as a it seems to have made them stronger um, within their democracy, even though they've this is an issue that some people will be really, really unhappy about. Perhaps with climate change. I mean, I suppose they're skeptics. And now how, how were they engaged in this process? It's a really good point. I remember going into the Citizens' Assembly minute one, day one, and looking out into the room of the Assembly members. And it was like a bunch of people who were at their first day in their job or their first day at school. They were all really unsure of each other, what the process would be, though they had a lot of information ahead of time. Within about an hour, it felt like everybody knew each other on at least one level. And as the weekends developed on a very deep level, so much so that actually assembly members have stayed in touch with each other and have got involved in the community response to not just the climate crisis, but also the pandemic. And when I went into the into the Citizens' Assembly for the first time, I saw people who I had seen on Extinction Rebellion marches. They were the first people I saw. That slightly filled me with fear because I thought we hadn't actually got a representative group. But then I looked out and I realised there were people who had slammed doors in my face when I door knocked in their neighbourhoods. There were people who, who by dint conversation with them, clearly let across the view that they did not trust politics, they didn't trust politicians, they didn't trust democracy, but they were really interested in what this exercise was, so they were going to come along. And they'd always wanted to know more about the climate crisis, but hadn't had access to the expertise or the knowledge in their time frame, in their real time, to, to truly to get to grips with it. And out the back of the, of the two weekends, we had people who had not being engaged with the climate issue whatsoever, who were now really eager to continue their involvement, who were looking for the council support to set up neighbourhood groups or community action groups. We had people who, at the start of the process, had been the most enthusiastic about meeting the climate crisis and going further and faster and shoveling as many resources into that, that action as possible, who, by the end of the Assembly, were part of a solid third who felt that actually the government's national legal target was ambitious enough we didn't need to go further and faster. They heard over the four days about how challenging it would be, and they felt that actually that was enough challenge to manage. And we had people who had felt that they were in the middle ground at the start of the process who had gone one way or the other, or actually had gone through the whole process and felt, I'm still where I am. And all of that was really helpful, not just as an educational exercise, not just as a persuasive exercise by citizens towards each other, but actually also in terms of discovering something we always knew to be true, but we knew it in a sharper light, which is people will disagree and that's fine as long as they do it reasonably and respectfully. And out of that disagreement, you can build a consensus for change. And in that citizens' assembly, we built a consensus for change because we allowed for that reasonable disagreement 
people felt like they were being heard, which was the important thing. And all of their insights were able to shape the different nuances of the responses. So following on from that, there's two two things I really want to ask you. So I'll say them both, but we'll address them separately. One is the change in what you're doing on climate. And the other is about the change that you're making in your everyday policy and engagement with citizens as a result of of this process. Out of the back of the Citizens Assembly on Climate Change, we wanted to provide an immediate response. We were aware that in declaring a climate emergency, what the council is effectively saying is that business as usual is not acceptable anymore, that we need to find a way of upping our ambition. And the Citizens Assembly was intended to achieve that. And I think the number of days that elapsed between the climate emergency declaration and the first weekend of the Citizens Assembly was something like 200 days. We really moved at real pace to pull together a very sophisticated engagement exercise. And then the time frame between the final day of the Assembly and the Cabinet's response to the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly was something like 60 days. And we wanted to move quickly because, yes, there's a climate emergency, but also if you ask people to engage in this democratic exercise of this level of detail, they quite rightly will expect to hear back substantively and quickly. And so when we did respond, we responded across all the five themes that we had chosen to discuss the climate emergency on the basis of. We identified what the Citizens' Assembly had said, and then we identified our initial responses very deliberately matched with our initial responses. And we then moved very quickly into the development of the council's budget for the next financial year. We deliberately held the Citizens' Assembly at pace in order that the responses to the recommendations could be funded from the next budget so that there was a sense that action was being followed by further action and you got a domino effect to build trust in not just our responsiveness, but also the responses that we would produce. And so we committed £19 million of new funding and um, brought together existing streams of funding into that pot in order that we could really amplify our efforts to meet the climate crisis. We, for the first time, looked at how much money the City Council had brought into the community uh, and the city to meet the climate crisis, and we discovered it was £81 million from two projects alone, uh, Project Leo and Energy Superhub Oxford, two big energy demonstrator projects, where it was over £100 million in terms of other grant funding that we brought in. And we basically presented that as a climate emergency budget to the whole city in a a really coherent way to demonstrate to the public that we were taking their concerns seriously. But uniquely, we also started the journey as a council towards a co-benefits approach. So we wanted to explicitly say to those members of the public that, yes, it is an emergency and, yes, that might cause alarm. And, yes, we need to do a response. But that response shouldn't be knee-jerk. It should be thoughtful. It should be considered It should be investing in sustainable infrastructure to allow proper delivery of effective policy. And also, in meeting the climate crisis, we meet your other aims. So if you're sceptical about putting money into environmental issue, if we invest in in retrofitting of housing, we actually produce better housing for our council tenants. If we invest in green spaces or enhancing the biodiversity, we produce better spaces for people to enjoy at their leisure, to improve their mental health. If we improve the transportation in the city so that there's a reduction in fossil fuel transportation, we've got a reduction in car use so we can increase connectivity. That helps people not to be stuck in stop-go traffic, breathing in the emissions that are being belched out by polluting vehicles, and they're not going to feel stressed and not enjoying their freedom of movement. And that's really the approach we've taken. 
we may have published a climate emergency budget, we may have held a citizens' assembly on climate change, we may have declared a climate emergency, but everything we do is about mainstreaming our climate action into all of our policy areas. And so while I hold the responsibility for climate action, I work extraordinarily closely with all of my cabinet colleagues to bake this into all that they do, because that's how it becomes really structurally permanent. And that's presented challenges. We've, as a city council, funded and committed significant resource to meeting our climate emergency for more than a decade. Since the first cuts came in from the coalition government and we saw our money being paired back significantly, we continue to invest in the sustainability team and we continue to bring in grant funding to really up our ambition year after year. But because we did that, we created a very coherent, large sustainability team, which other councils would look at and feel quite envious of, but it was very siloed from other teams. And what we've done now is to have a zero carbon Oxford internal steering group, which brings together the leads of all the major teams to work together around a joined up plan that everyone has buy into. And I think that has been one of the biggest transformations to come out of the Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change. And then looking out to the public and how we engage with the public, because there's such an awareness about the climate agenda compared with previous years, it's finally rocketing to the top of the political agenda. We've been able to build on that salience of the issue to talk more about it. We have put money into communications. We were specifically told by the Citizens' Assembly to invest more money in communications around recycling and the ways in which individuals can change their behaviour. So we have done that and will continue to do that. We've just, for instance, secured money from government to fund a new air quality website to encourage communication and uh, behavioural change. And we've also continued to work with Ipsos Mori to have a citizens panel. So we recruit a representation of the city into that online panel. And then we put questions to it on a regular basis to find out what the views of the city are on given issues. And we did this very recently on the climate issue that we've just been discussing on the willingness to buy electric vehicles, on the willingness to ride in autonomous vehicles if they are safe and as safe and demonstrate to be as safe as human-driven cars, and views on buses. I love a fully functioning bus network, so it was great to ask questions about what the public wanted of their bus providers in terms of social good and ethical good and meeting the climate crisis. And all that information which comes in has helped to shape the policy that we introduce we asked the public a set of questions about pedestrianisation at the start of the first lockdown. The direct result of that was that we are now pursuing a very coherent and coordinated approach to pedestrianise as many streets in the city centre as we humanly can. And I think the engagement from the Citizens' Assembly has just helped to build a momentum that is rolling and rolling. Wow, I, I, look, I look forward to visiting Oxford again soon. I mean, I love your park and ride. I like how there's you know, it is already quite walker friendly, but to, to be even more will be will be fantastic. So, I mean, not sure when I'm going to leave my house again, but, you know, one day, one day. And if you do leave your house by driving into Oxford, then you could drive your electric vehicle and you could park it at Redbridge Park and Ride because at the end of the year, it will be home to the UK's largest EV charging hub and the home to the UK's largest rapid um, EV charging hub too, part of our Energy Super Hub Oxford project. So, and the PR company don't like me calling this project uh, this, but it basically is a BBB. It's a big, bloody battery on the outskirts of Oxford. It's the world's largest um, hybrid battery, and it allows for such things as this EV charging hub, but also for our bus fleets to electrify faster than they ordinarily would because they can have private cable laid to their depots. And it allows for City Council to move ahead with its plan to electrify 25% of our fleet by 2023. We've just got our first electric bin lorry in town. 
which is a very exciting day. Um, let me tell you, I've never smiled like I did on that day. And uh, the things that local government does to you, it's, it's an electric agenda that's moving forward, but you'll be able to partake in it. Does the Ben Laurie have a name? It doesn't, it doesn't, um, which I'm really sad about. Um, I'm a big Oasis fan coming from Greater Manchester, so all of my social media described it as She's Electric, which led to lots of friends tweeting the rest of the lyrics at me, which which made the day even more enjoyable. <laughs> are you are you planning to have some kind of like community naming thing? Because I love a named Bin Laurie or Gritter. I'm personally calling it the Binderella of the Fleet. <laughs> And we're keen that we do ask the public to get involved. So we've got two electric delivery vehicles in our very historic and beautiful covered market in the city centre, which are about to go into use. And we're asking the public for names of those of those two electric vehicles. And uh, the names that are coming forward are quite good. They're, they're quite enjoyable at this point. I bet. I mean, there's always the ones that never make it to the public-facing website that are uh, interesting and fun. Maybe not for air. No, that's fantastic. If you were if you were at another council and you wanted to do something like this or take some of the lessons, how would you find out more about this process without without flooding you guys with calls? I really feel for local government because, as a sector, we have been so underfunded. And the underfunding has led to, particularly in certain areas of the country, a real increase in the need for council services at a time when the funding is most stretched. So it's a really vicious circle. And I understand entirely why councils have chosen to prioritise their funding on core services. And now they're reaching a point where, because the country hasn't prioritised local government, because the country hasn't prioritised meeting the climate crisis, we are now very aware of the consequences of not taking action. And so what needs to happen is for local government to be properly resourced and supported by national government within a stronger framework of funding and powers. But there also needs to be a growth in the peer support among local councils to really get the ball rolling if councils haven't done that so far. And so I talked to quite a lot of councillors and councils about them just getting their first sustainability officer. They've never had that before. And once the first comes in, then they can start applying for funding, which allows for a second to come in and then the the process just grows and the ambition can grow. I think the answer I always uh, would give to councillors who ask me, so we've declared a climate emergency, but what next? Is get a grip on your emissions. Look at the data. What are the sources of emissions in your local community? And is it transport? Is it going to be buildings? Is it going to be um, energy? Once you've got that data, think about what will help you to make the largest inroads in terms of carbon emissions reductions as fast as possible. What are the areas which you can directly draw your partners into addressing? So do you have anchored institutions, you know, organisations that bear your community's name that just can't leave town? So here in Oxford, we have the University of Oxford. They can't leave town. And they happily have a lot of knowledge that they can share with us to, to help us to boost our um, ambition. So drawing on your partners and your anchored institutions. And also, I think I would say, don't beat yourself up. You will have done some really good stuff. You've got a basis to build on. Don't just reinvent the wheel. Look at what you've done. Look at who's been quietly plugging away in your community on the installation of solar panels or, you know, the demonstration of energy projects or the rollout of EV charges and then bring them together into a coalition because out of that strength-based approach, you're going to make the best possible move forward. But I do feel very sympathetic to councils that have been underfunded and now quite rightly feeling like they should respond to what is objectively a real crisis 
but which their public are for the first time in probably ever to the greatest degree concerned about. I would not always say, by the way, that you should hold a citizens' assembly because for us it was it was an exercise undertaken to understand the additional ambition we ought to show. We had already had this decade of action. It was a way for us to bring in new voices that we know would typically not engage with this issue or would have other things to focus on because times are hard. And because of the size of the city, because of the salience of the issue, because of the need to figure out what our new business as usual should be, it felt right to have this exercise. But what I would say is that you don't need to necessarily go down the road of having an expensive engagement exercise if you feel like, as a council, your population is of a size and your proximity to its, its views is such that you can actually truly understand where their heads are at and come up with a policy uh, response which meets their needs. And the great thing about local government is that we are nearest to our communities than any other level of government. Because of that, councils will go out and door knock, they'll feed that into the decision-making process. If you're of a small population size and if you are close to these residents and their issues, you don't need to have a citizens' assembly. Just do what's right for you and use the resources that you've got in the best possible way. Fantastic. And and the report on the Citizens Assembly is on your website so people can can read it, have a look at it and then see if there's issues uh, or viewpoints that they can explore in less formal ways as well. Absolutely. And we've got all of the recordings of all of the presentations by the experts on YouTube. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know that. So we'll we'll drop a link on the uh, on the show notes on the lgu.org website so folks can have a look at that if they want to. I'm going to ask you something completely different now that I didn't prep you for, but I'm just dead curious. You mentioned that we have some local elections coming up. Local elections are exciting time for me. I've got to, you know, well, very busy time, Um, but even busier for you, I suspect. And what is it like campaigning during a pandemic right now? It's a fascinating question. And I recognize that in other communities, campaigning isn't happening physically as we're used to on the doorstep. My experience in my own ward is, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly enjoyable. I had expected going into campaigning that people would shoo me away. They would feel it was somehow disrespectful to be coming so near to the door. And that in a way it was prioritizing the wrong thing. But actually, and I've been out campaigning every day for the last week and done a lot of campaigning the week before, everybody is really friendly and excited on the doorstep to see um, their councillor. Or just another person. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I thought it was that they were happy about local government and democracy. I think you're right. I think there's some people who, who really haven't seen another person in the flesh for a very long time to speak to in any substantive way. So the experience I'm having is that people are excited to see you on the doorstep. There's that moment of, who is this person? I don't recognise them. Why have they got such long hair and and why are they wearing a mask? I don't recognise that person at all. But when they do recognise you and you can get to that conversation, it's really lovely because these are people who I'll know anyway um, from door knocking previously, from being in touch with them by the WhatsApp neighbourhood group. Uh, chat by email by social media and so there's that basis to talk to them anyway but they really want to stop and talk and so whereas before they may have kind of gone I've got the tea on or I've just got home from work now they really want to have the chat and the quality of the conversation is so much richer so much deeper it does mean that you have slower canvassing um, sessions you speak to fewer people 
than you ordinarily would, but the quality is so much stronger. And it's because people want to talk about how they're feeling, they want to connect, but they're also really excited by this. They wouldn't call it this, but this Build Back Better agenda. You know, they want to talk about, well, actually, now that the NHS has done this, what's the link up between councils and the NHS? Now that we're driving around less, what does that mean for the low traffic neighbourhoods that we're introducing into our own community? Now that we're recognising the importance of being in green spaces for our well-being, what will this mean? Will the council go further than just calling for a doubling of tree cover across Oxfordshire, planting 7,000 trees in the previous year? Are you going to do even more than that? And it also gets into this question about the climate crisis. We had focused so much as a council on creating a community response, as a council facilitating that, setting our own agenda to be a zero carbon council by 2030 or earlier, looking out to our partners to be creating a zero carbon Oxford partnership, which seeks to create a zero carbon city by 2040 or earlier. Exactly in response to what the Citizens Assembly had said, which is you get your house in order and then you get everyone else's house in order and then you come to the people. And now we're coming to the people and saying, okay, we want to support you to transition to zero carbon communities. And they say, we hear you, we want to do that. We recognise that you want to do this as part of a community response. We agree with that. But how do we do that now? We have to be a part. And I think that's the challenge for us. We figured out how as a community to respond to the pandemic. We figured out as a community how to support one another. But how do we now take those steps to baking in climate action when it comes to communities and allowing for action, which creates places that are stronger, creates a sense of belonging to place and people? It's going to be really hard for councils that have prioritised building communities. Yeah, I, I think I think that's really interesting. And it's one of the things that I, I wondered if people would be kind of more engaged with local issues because they've been more visible in the past year than they have. I mean, we, we know that the councils have always been there and supporting the effective running of communities and, and places, but sometimes behind the scenes a little bit. But, you know, people were clapping binmen, people were, you know, really aware of their public spaces in the past year. And so I did wonder if those kind of conversations were, were changing. So it's really good to hear that people are kind of recognizing the importance of, of local democracy. But also, you know, just someone new to talk to. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said for the way in which we're now styling our conversations, where it's very online, it's very driven by text rather than first spoken words. And so you know, I've spent a lot of time in uh, WhatsApp chats in our neighborhood groups spent a lot of time on social media trying to be very visible, posting about um, updates. People will feel like they can message on WhatsApp and on social media and it can be very instantaneous. So that means that there's, a, there's an expectation of a fast response, which I think is interesting. That's, that's amplified to a greater extent. Um, I think, too, that we're having conversations about transportation, which is itself always a heated issue, but with the introduction of low-traffic neighbourhoods can potentially be even more of a heated issue. And the fact that so much of that is being carried out via chat, via Zoom calls, rather than face-to-face, I think is, is not helpful for, for really bringing communities together around a consensus position. And the, the hope I've got is that we're all vaccinated, we're all able to be physically among each other, and we can have these conversations about how we chart a new build up better in a way which allows for that respectful and reasonable democratic engagement, um, that we recognise each other as neighbours and friends, and that we're able to really focus on what we're trying to achieve and that they feel like the councils are consulting, because we are, but somehow this national cultural discourse means that there's a view that local government is somehow detached from the public, 
when actually we've never been so near to the public. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to let you get back to the campaign trail. And thanks very much. And again, we'll provide links to all the information that you've got on on lgiu.org. So thank you so much, Tom. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, just as you said in, in the intro, you know, focusing both on, on, on the policy context and the process and how you know, elected representatives and communities can can work together. But Ingrid, you know, that's great. But I couldn't help noticing at the end you couldn't resist sneaking an election question in. No, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't resist. It's like um, a, you're like an so election yeah, he, addict. It's, I know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I say I'm going to do one thing, but it's all about elections, really. Um, yeah, no, so he is... Um, He's one of the councillors up for election. It's all out in Oxford City Council. And it was it was so good to hear from him about the positive reception that he's getting on the doorstep, not in a partisan way, but in a kind of, hey, you know, it's awesome that people are actually engaged with local politics in possibly a post-COVID kind of way, you know, having seen uh, how important local government is to to their lives, you know, just kind of coming to it in a in a different sort of way so we'll see we'll see what happens with this election but i i just we've already started our elections coverage and support um this week i'll indulge you ingrid tell us all about it yeah so we've got our communications guide personal safety guide uh, elections issues briefing we've got video from our free seminar on personal safety on the campaign trail um which you can watch again um, and find out what's the right number to call if you're calling an emergency line from your mobile. Yeah. Spoiler, not what you would think. Yeah. No, really, really fascinating. So, and much more to come, right? Wants to watch. We're going to be delving into in a bit more depth. We're working with the the BBC to help give them some some data around council spending so that they can they can start to sort of do their job of informing the you know, the audience, the voter, the citizenry about what it is they're actually voting about banging our drum as always about these are not opinion polls these are real elections with consequential outcomes particularly given all the stuff we've been talking about all the way through you know the decisions councils are going to have to make to to shape places post-covid we're doing a new news update with our chums at vulio which you can sign up to coming out every week capturing election news from across the uk what else? How do we get? How do you get that, Ingrid? How do you get all those goodies? Well, if you go to lgiu.org and you sign up on our website and you choose the topic, democracy, devolution and governance, which why wouldn't you? That's your key to all the kind of election goodies coming your way. And then, of course, we'll be covering local elections, whatever they might look like this year. I think it's going to be a bit weird. You know, on the I was going to say on the night, but it won't be on the night. It's going to be like extended. Counting. We don't quite know yet, do we? When when counts are, are happening, I think there's going to be a bit of variation across the country. We're already seeing, I think, yeah. people taking quite different approaches uh, and you know different setups to you know, to ensure covered safety and, and stuff. So yeah, that's going to be it's going to be quite a long set of election. Yeah, for people who do yeah. want to kind of focus on it from beginning to end are you Ingrid it's going to be a long a long 48 
72 hours. I think it's going to be more than 72 hours of goodness would be my guess. But hey, if you if you have, you know, I'm sure you've got plans out there already, drop us a line. We'd love to hear about what you're doing in terms of preparing for a COVID safe election. If you're running for a council office, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you as well. Because we we want more election interviews on the podcast. Yeah, I was just um, saying, of course, we will be having more coverage on this podcast, more interviews with people who are involved in organizing the election and trying to get behind the experience of what, what a COVID election is really like. Yeah, I, I can't wait. You can't. It's true. Uh, but you, dear listener, will have to because that's it for this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you very much for listening. Do uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Do Leave us a review. Uh, helps people to find this podcast. And we will talk to you again in a fortnight. Bye-bye.